Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Good evening, friends, and welcome to our presentation again tonight on the final events of Bible prophecy as we continue on our series of lectures. Our topic tonight is entitled The Seal of the Living God. The Seal of the Living God. Now, in our last lecture, we identified the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, and we discovered that this system is none other than the papal system. It's not the people. I want to remind you about that point. We're talking about the system. We're talking about the power. Now, we know that the Bible tells us that this particular power has a mark called the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast. Now, we read those verses there last night that talked about the beast and the mark of the beast, and we discovered that it was vital for us to understand what the mark of the beast was because there was a terrible warning given against those who receive the mark of the beast. Let's look at that verse again that we read last night about the beast and the mark of the beast. This is the third angel's message. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, we read these words. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This mark is obviously a very serious thing that we need to avoid. Now, we are going to identify what the mark of the beast is tomorrow night, but the Bible also tells us that God has a mark. The mark of the beast identifies our association with the papacy, but God's mark, which is called the seal of God, links us to the worship of the true God. Now, tonight we are going to discover what the seal of the living God is, because in the future, friends, there will be two classes on this world, those who receive the mark of the beast and those who receive the seal of the living God. The seal will distinguish your allegiance to God. The mark will will distinguish your allegiance to the papal power. They are two distinct marks which will signify two distinct groups. Now, what is the seal of God? We find the seal of God brought to view in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. I want you to open your Bible, if you have one there tonight, to the book of Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to find out what the seal of God is all about. We're actually going to start reading in chapter 6, in verse 14, the Bible says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Here we find, friends, the second coming of Jesus Christ taking place. We discovered in our previous lectures how Christ will come to this earth Every eye will see him. The nations of the world will mourn because of him because they are unprepared for his coming. Here we find many of the kings of the earth, the rich, the poor, the great, crying to the mountains and the rocks to hide them from Jesus Christ. The verse 16, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice verse 17. Notice this question in verse 17. 
For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The question is, friends, when Jesus comes, the wicked cry out, who shall be able to stand? Who are the ones that will be able to be standing? Who are the ones that will be prepared when Jesus comes? Now we go straight into chapter 7. The next verse is chapter 7, verse 1. Notice in answer to the question of who shall be able to stand, notice who they are. Revelation 7, verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. Verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Verse 3. Saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. In answer to the question, who shall be able to stand, God is holding back the winds of strife because it says in the Bible here in verse 3, till the servants of our God are sealed in their foreheads. So in answer to that question, who shall be able to stand, friends, the answer is those who receive the seal of the living God. Now notice the Bible tells us here in verse 3, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads you see friends those who are receiving the seal of god they are already the servants of god they are already christians we could say what the bible's telling us here is that many of god's people in the many different churches of this world today including the catholic church are missing god's seal there's something in their life that they are missing and god says hold back the winds of strife Hold back the second coming until the servants of our God are sealed in their foreheads. There's something missing in the lives of the people of God, many of them at least. Now notice where did the Bible tell us that the seal of God is placed? The Bible tells us the seal of the living God is placed in the forehead. Now the mark of the beast is also placed where? In the forehead or in the right hand. This is an interesting point. In the forehead or in the right hand for the mark and the seal is placed in the forehead. The seal of God and the mark of the beast are two items that are in contention one with the other. And God's people, we are told there in Revelation chapter 7, need to be sealed with the seal of the living God. Now what is the seal of the living God? Now the first thing we have to ask ourselves here is this. What is a seal? What is the seal? You see, in Bible times, ancient times, and even today, a seal is like an official signature. In ancient times, a ruling official or a king would have a royal seal. On official documents or laws, wax would be melted, and that seal would be placed in that wax as an official signature of ownership by the king or the ruling official. Now, we find in the Bible a and a good example of a royal seal. In the book of Esther, chapter 8, we find King Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire. He found himself in a little bit of trouble. What took place, in a nutshell, was basically this. He was deceived into passing a law that on a certain day, all the Jews should be killed. And he sealed that law with his royal seal. 
Now, in the law of the Medes and the Persians, the royal seal was so powerful, it was so strong, that even when the king sealed a law, even the king himself could not reverse that seal. Even the king could not reverse that law. And that's what took place. He sealed this law that on a certain time the Jews could be killed. But what he didn't realize was that his beautiful queen Esther was a Jew. And now he wanted to reverse the law and he couldn't. Notice what the Bible says here in Esther chapter 8 verse 8. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. So what King Ahasuerus did was he wrote another law. He sealed that with his royal seal. And the law said the Jews were able to defend themselves. And that averted the slaughter of the Jewish nation. But the point here is this, friends, that the seal is a powerful thing. The seal in the days of the Bible times was so powerful that even the king himself could not change the law. Now, we find a seal. There are three main elements that make up a seal. There needs to be a name, a title, and a territory. In the case of King Ahasuerus, the name would be Ahasuerus. Title, king, territory, the Persian Empire. When we come down to the modern day in which you and I live, we find there are seals today. An example of a modern seal would be United States of America. We would find the name George Bush. Title, President, Territory, the United States of America. What about in Australia today, our own country? We find a name, Kevin Rudd. Title, Prime Minister, Territory, Australia. Now, God is telling us that he has a seal. God's seal would contain those three elements as well. His official signature would contain those three elements. Those three elements would be name, Lord God, Title, creator, territory, heaven and earth. God's seal would contain those three elements as well. Now, a seal validates a worldly law or official document, and it's a mark of ownership and authority. Now, the question is this. Does God's seal have something to do with his great legal document, his law? And the answer, I believe, friends, is yes. Notice what the Bible tells us here in the book of Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16 it says bind up the testimony seal the law among my disciples here we find the Bible tells us it gives us a clue here of what the seals about it says bind up the testimony seal the law among my disciples God's seal my friends has something to do with his law now let's go back to Revelation chapter 14 in Revelation chapter 14 God tells us who the people are that don't receive the mark of the beast. Let's go back to Revelation 14, verse 9 and 10. Remember, this is talking about the mark of the beast. Notice these words. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is the warning about those who receive the mark of the beast, not to receive it. In Revelation 13, verse 8, the Bible tells us that the whole world will worship and follow the beast and receive that mark, except those who have their name in the Lamb's book of life. 
Now we find here that was verse 9, 10 and 11 goes in with that and tells us that the wrath of God with that mixture will be poured upon them. But now God in verse 12, notice this, God in verse 12 tells us about the group of people that won't receive the mark of the beast. Now notice how he describes them. In other words, they will receive the seal of God. Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God, in contrast to the world that received the mark of the beast, points to a group of people and says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You see, friends, they are the ones that will receive the seal of God. And God identifies them as keeping the commandments of God. You see, friends, that seal has something to do with the law of God. The distinguishing mark of those that receive the seal of God is that they keep the commandments. Now, where is the seal going to be placed? We mentioned just before it gets placed in the forehead, not on the forehead. Some people have the idea that the seal of God and the mark of the beast is like a big, big mark on our forehead. The devil's going to come down and put the mark of the beast on people's forehead with a big rubber stamp, and then God will come down with a, with a mark and put a, put a stamp on their foreheads. You see, friends, the mark doesn't go on the forehead. It goes in the forehead. You see, friends, in our forehead is our mind. And the Bible tells us that God wants to put something into our mind. He wants to put his seal into our mind. Now, notice what the Bible says God wants to put into our mind. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. You see, friends, God's seal is in his law, and he wants to place that law into our minds, into our hearts. We discovered there on our lecture the great controversy. We're in a great controversy between the laws of God and the laws of the devil. And God wants to place that law into our minds, into our hearts, that we are living examples of obedience to his laws and his kingdom. God's seal, friends, is in his law. He has to have his seal in his law. Every official document has that seal, and God says he has a seal, and friends, that seal, we find, is in the law of God. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, whereabouts in the law of God do we find God's seal? Now, remember, a seal is made up of three elements, name, title, and territory. Now, if we go through God's Ten Commandments, we find there is only one commandment in the entire ten that gives us the name, the title, and the territory of God. And that commandment is the fourth commandment. God has placed his signature, his seal, his identifying mark in that fourth commandment to show that this law, these Ten Commandments, are owned by him. Notice Exodus 20, verses 8 to 9. This is the Ten Commandments here. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We find in that particular commandment those three elements that make up that royal seal. We find the name of God. It says, the Lord your God. It gives us his title, maker or creator. 
It gives us his territory, heaven and earth. In the fourth commandment and the fourth commandment only do we find those three elements, name, title, and territory. And God, my friends, has placed his signature, his seal in that commandment because without that signature in God's law, any other God or any other person could claim that law has his own. Buddha can come along and say, that's my law. Muhammad, the gods of India, the gods of China. In fact, I could come along and say, that's my law. I'm God and those Ten Commandments are mine. But every other God and every other person is knocked out when they see God's signature in there because we are unable to claim ourselves as the creator of heaven and earth. It's God's claims that he is the creator of all things that sets aside the Ten Commandments from any other law in the universe. Only God, the God of the Bible, has the ability, ability to create which makes the Ten Commandment law his law. The Sabbath commandment, my friends, is the seal of the living God. Now, I can hear somebody saying out there, well, Tony, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Isn't there any other scripture that says that the Sabbath is the seal of God? Well, friends, yes, there is. I want you to notice this verse of scripture on, the, on our screen here tonight. Ezekiel 20 and verse 12. The Bible says, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. The Bible tells us God gave us the Sabbath. God gave his people the Sabbath to be a sign or a seal, we could say, between him and the people that we might know that he is our God and that we are worshiping him. In verse 20 of the same chapter, the Bible says, And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. You see, friends, that sign, that the Sabbath is to be a sign between God and his people as an identifying mark of who we worship. And that word sign is actually able to be used as the word seal. We find in the book of Romans chapter 4 verse 1 where the words sign and seal are used synonymously the Bible says and he talking about Abraham received the sign of circumcision a seal so here we see a sign but now it's a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that word sign is the same as the word seal in some cases and Ezekiel 20 verse 12 and verse 20 when God says it's a sign between me and you that I am your God, that's the same as saying it's a seal between me and you. It's my official, official signature. It proves when you worship me on the Sabbath day that you are worshiping the creator God. Now, why is the Sabbath important? Why is the Sabbath important? Because, friends, it's an indicator of who you worship. Have a look at this verse. In Revelation chapter 14, we've talked about the three angels' messages. We've spoken only about the third one, which talks about not worshipping the beast or following the beast or receiving the mark of the beast. But the first angel's message tells us this, Revelation 14 verse 6. Remember, these are worldwide messages. This message must go to the world to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. Revelation 14 verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth 
and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Notice the Bible tells us here this message, this first angel's message, and the second and the third, must go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him. The hour of his judgment is come. The end of all things is basically at hand. And notice the words. It says, Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. These words are the same as the words in the fourth commandment. To worship the one that is the creator. The first angel's message, my friend, is a call to come back to the worship of the great creator God. And we worship the great creator God on his Sabbath day. That is the sign, that is a seal, that is an indicator of who we are worshipping. It's a call to come back to the creator God. Today people are being deceived into worshipping almost anything, including themselves. But the call of God today, my friends, is to worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. It is a sign of who we are worshipping. Friends, the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath, right there in the commandments of God, the largest commandment is God's signature. It is his seal that he wants us to keep. The Sabbath was instituted at creation. It is the memorial of God's creative power. And today, because mankind has lost the Sabbath and rejected the Sabbath, people have lost contact with God. In fact, many don't believe we even have a creation week anymore. Why? Because they've lost that seal. They've lost that seal which connects them with creation and the creator, and that seal is the Sabbath. As the Sabbath comes around the world once a week, it was to be a sign that God created us and that all could see who we are worshipping. But today man has rejected creation, largely. Man has rejected God, and instead of having the creation and the Sabbath, we have evolution. We have other theories that leave us empty and hopeless. You know, evolution has taken the place of creation. If mankind had faithfully, I believe, kept the Sabbath day from creation week, evolution would never, ever have come into effect. Evolution is simply the devil's counterfeit to creation. And all the evidence that's coming out more and more in this modern day is that evolution is a joke and that creation is real. More and more scientists are coming to believe that we have been designed by a higher power because the evidence is becoming overwhelming. The Bible tells us, my friends, the Bible tells you tonight that your father is the almighty God. Evolution tells you that your father is a monkey. Friends, many in our world today don't know where they're going. They don't know where they've come from. They don't know why they're here. They feel that they are a mistake. But friends, God has made us. We are not a mistake. God loves us. The Bible tells us that God knows us even before we are born. Don't let anybody ever tell you, friend, that you're a mistake. God designed that you would be born. Now, all Christians... Now, all Christians know the Ten Commandments, and they all know that the largest commandment is the Sabbath. But here it gets very interesting with our next question. The question is this. What day is the Sabbath day? This is where the topic begins to become very important. All Christians know the Ten Commandments. All Christians know the biggest commandment is the Sabbath commandment. 
in the, in the terms of the writing of it at least. But which day now is the Sabbath day? The Bible tells us what day the Sabbath day is. In the commandments itself, it says in Exodus 20 verse 10, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. So we find that the Bible tells us very clearly that the seventh day is the Sabbath of God. But how do we know which day is the seventh day? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. Well, first of all, if we go to a dictionary, the dictionary definition tells us that the seventh day is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Now, of course, we can't take our theology from a dictionary, can we? Even though the dictionary tells us that Saturday is the seventh day of the week. We can't take our theology there. We must get our theology and our belief and our teaching from the Word of God. This is a rule book for the Christian, isn't it? Let's see what day the Bible gives us as the seventh day of the week. We find a story here in the Bible that clearly tells us what day is the seventh day of the week. In Luke chapter 23, we find that Jesus Christ has died. He's upon the cross of Calvary. He has died and a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, he goes to Pilate and asks if he can take down the body of Christ. And we pick up our story here in verse 52. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. Notice this verse before we go on. Here is Jesus. He's died. Joseph takes him down, wraps him up. He goes to place him in a sepulcher that's never been used before. But the Bible tells us, and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. Now, in Bible times, they didn't use the same names for the day of the week that we do. There was no Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and so forth. The names of the days of the week in Bible time was first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, preparation day, and Sabbath day. We find here that Jesus has died on preparation day. As Joseph takes down his body, the Sabbath is soon to come on because the Sabbath begins when the sun goes down on Friday evening. The whole Christian world knows what day Jesus died. They call it Good Friday. The Bible calls it Preparation Day. The reason why it was called Preparation Day because it was the day the people of God were to prepare to keep the Sabbath the next day. Notice as it goes on now, verse 55, And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. So the women that followed, they went to the tomb, they saw the tomb where his body was laid, Verse 56, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So here's the people of God. They take Jesus down from preparation day. They put him in the tomb. They go back to the city. They rest on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And we pick up our story now in Luke 24, verse 1. Upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing spices which they had prepared and certain others with them here is our story here is the order of events let's look at this on the screen now the order of events jesus dies on preparation day 
Now, the whole Christian world knows what day preparation day was. The whole Christian world today calls it Good Friday. That was the day that Jesus died. He was taken from the cross, put into the tomb. His disciples went back home and kept the Sabbath day holy. And Jesus was in the tomb on the seventh day of the week, which we call Saturday. Early on Sunday morning, they go back to the tomb. The ladies go back to the tomb to embalm the body of Christ. Of course, he wasn't there. This is Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, the whole Christian world knows what day Jesus died, and they know what day Jesus rose. He died on Good Friday. He arose on Easter Sunday. Now, the Bible tells us very, very clearly the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is the Sabbath day. What day is that, friends? It is Saturday, friends, the seventh day of the week. You see, the Bible's telling us that the Sabbath is on Saturday, not Sunday. In fact, in 108 languages of the world, the word for the seventh day of the week is Sabbath. We call it Saturday. <clears throat> we get the names of the week in the English language from actually from the Roman Empire. They were the different days they would worship different gods. Sunday was for the worship of the sun and Monday for the moon god and so forth. But in many languages, the seventh day of the week, which we call Saturday, they actually call Sabbath because, friends, that is the Sabbath day. It's the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, why do most Christians break the Sabbath and keep Sunday? Was the Sabbath changed by Jesus or the disciples? Well, friends, according to the Bible, Christ or the early Christians never kept or sanctified Sunday. In fact, Jesus himself, we are told in the scriptures, kept the Sabbath day holy. Notice here in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Here we find the custom of Jesus Christ was on the Sabbath day to go to the synagogue. In other words, to go to church. Now, let me ask you, what is a custom? <clears throat> a custom is something you and I do on a habitual basis. Jesus kept the Sabbath day. Well, what about the apostles? Did they keep the Sabbath after Jesus died? Well, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts several times that they kept the Sabbath day holy. Notice one here in Acts 13, verse 42. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath. It goes on. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. This is talking about the Gentiles, friends. The Gentiles came forward and they said, come back next Sabbath and preach to us again. The Bible tells us, friends, that Christ kept the Sabbath. The disciples kept the sabbath in fact one of the strongest indications that the sabbath was never to be done away with is the words of jesus found in matthew chapter 24 in fact looking back at acts we find that there was about 84 meetings that we can glean from the book of acts that the apostle paul held on the sabbath but the words of jesus seal for us that the sabbath was never to be changed after his death we find in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to them about the destruction of Jerusalem. He tells them that after he dies and is left this earth, Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem will be destroyed. And he says these words. So Jesus now 
Now look at this. He's focusing on a future event after his death. He says these words in Matthew 24, verse 20. He says, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Jesus says when this event takes place, you must be watching for this event to take place because history tells us that there was not one Christian lost in the destruction of Jerusalem because they heeded the warning of Christ. But he said as part of that warning, he says, pray that when this happens, you don't have to flee in the winter because it's very cold there in the winter or on the Sabbath day. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD. This is almost 40 years after the death of Christ. Jesus was focusing to the future and expecting his people still to be keeping the Sabbath day holy at least 40 years after he ascended into the heavens. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. You see, friends, Jesus Christ never expected the Sabbath to be changed. He never expected his disciples not to be keeping the Sabbath because he said, after I die, when Jerusalem's destroyed, pray that you may not have to flee on the Sabbath. Why? Because he expected his people to be keeping that day holy. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute here. I've never heard this before. What about this text or what about this thought? Now, there are some misunderstandings about the Sabbath. I've come across seven misunderstandings in my own study of this as people come and they'll say, but Tony, what about this verse or what about this thought? I want to go through those seven misunderstandings with you tonight to show you how they are, what I said, misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding that comes across our path, and it comes to me quite often when I present this sort of lecture, is people come and they'll say, but Tony, the Lord's Day is Sunday. The Bible says the Lord's Day is Sunday. And the first thing I usually say to them is, well, can you show me in the Bible where it says the Lord's Day is Sunday? And some turn over to the book of Revelation and they go to chapter 1 and they look at verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Notice what it says. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Here we find John the Revelator. He's on the island of Patmos. He begins to write the book of Revelation. He sees the different visions and so forth that God gives him. And he begins by writing there. He says, I was in the Spirit. I was having these visions, in other words, on the Lord's day. Now, people say, well, there it is. And I'll say, well, listen, that says, on the Lord's Day, it doesn't say what day the Lord's Day is. It doesn't say it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or any other day of the week. But the first thing we can notice in this particular verse is that God has a day. Isn't that right? This is the Apostle John. By this stage, he's about 90 years of age. He's an old man, many years after Jesus Christ. It's almost 70 years after Jesus left the earth. And we find John saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the first point is, the Lord has a day, doesn't he? Even many years after Christ ascended, John's still saying the Lord has a day. But the question we have to ask ourselves, well, what day is the Lord's day? You see, friends, John knew exactly what day the Lord's day was because John heard Jesus speak these words found in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. Notice what day is the Lord's day according to Jesus? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man 
is Lord also of the Sabbath. When John was saying in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he was simply referring to what day? The Sabbath day, because Jesus himself said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Revelation 1.10 actually proves that the Sabbath was still being kept by the disciples many, many years after Jesus left this earth. It has nothing to do with Sunday. The Lord's day, friends, is not Sunday. It is the Sabbath day. The next misunderstanding people have is this. They say, oh, the Sabbath, that was made for the Jews. The Sabbath was just made for the Jews. It wasn't made for all us Christians. But notice once again the words of Jesus back in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It doesn't say made for the Jews and not Jews for the Sabbath. It says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see, friends, God made the Sabbath at creation week. He created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested, he blessed, and sanctified that day as the Sabbath day. Now, how many Jews were at creation week, we could ask? How many Jews were there when God made the Sabbath? There wasn't any Jews. In fact, there was no Jews until about 2,000 years after creation when Abraham came along, and Abraham was considered the father of the Jewish nation. You see, friends, it's not made just for the Jews. It's made for the whole of mankind to be kept as a day of rest and worship and devotion to our Lord and Saviour. Well, others come along with a misunderstanding and they say, well, listen, we keep Sunday in honour of the resurrection. And that's nice. You can keep Sunday in honour of the resurrection if you like, but that does not negate the command of God to keep holy the seventh day. There is not a text in the scripture, my friends, that gives us an indication that we should be keeping Sunday holy in honour of the resurrection. Why not keep Friday holy as well? That was a very special day. That was the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Why don't we keep Friday in honor of the death of Christ, where he paid for the sins of mankind? There is no text in the Bible that tells us to keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection. That's a tradition, a traditional saying, I should say, of man. Others come along and they say, well, listen, the Sabbath was lost. No one knows when the Sabbath is. Well, friends, the Sabbath was never lost. Right down to the day in which we live, we know the Sabbath day is Saturday, the seventh day of the week today. If we go back and have a look at this video timeline on the screen, we find we can trace the Sabbath from Adam right down to Moses where God gave the commandments and wrote it with his own finger. From Moses we go down to the time of Jesus where Jesus kept the Sabbath. From Jesus to the early disciples and the early church, they kept the Sabbath. And we can go right down from there, right through to our very day. And we still have the Jewish nation today keeping the Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Now, the Jews are very meticulous about keeping times and records. They have never lost the Sabbath, friends. From Adam to Moses to Jesus to the early disciples and the early Christian church, right down to the Jews, they all kept Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Friends, it's never been lost. Others come along and they say, well, listen, I worship God every day. They come across as a bit more pious and holy than others. I worship God every day. Who needs to have a Sabbath? I worship God every day. But friends, there's a difference between having a day of worship and worshiping God every day. Worshiping God every day means you wake up in the morning as a Christian. You read your Bible, you pray, and you go off into to the, uh, the day of labor and work. But the day of worship is a day of rest. You can't worship God every day as a Sabbath. 
Otherwise, you can never work. You'd have to go on the dole to keep the Sabbath every day of the week. God has set aside a specific day for worship, for church, and for devotion to him. We can't do that every day of the week. Others come along and they'll say, listen, Tony, any day in seven will do. Any day will do, as long as there's one in seven. So if I, if I decide Tuesday is the Sabbath, I'll just keep every, every Tuesday as the Sabbath every week. But friends, we can't do that. You try telling your wife next time your wedding anniversary comes along and you forget about it, like husbands often do, that, oh, don't worry about it, honey, we'll have it, we'll have it tomorrow. They don't usually go too well with that answer, do they? The reason being is because the day your wedding anniversary arrives is the day of your wedding anniversary. You just can't choose another day. It would be a little bit like if I've got seven ladies tonight out of our audience up the front. Just say I've got seven ladies out tonight. I place them in a row, and on the end of the row, number seven is my wife. And I stand back and I look at all these, all these ladies, and they're all beautiful. They're all good cooks. They all make fantastic wives. And on the end is my wife, the seventh. But I go along and I decide I'll choose number four. Anyone will do. How do you think my wife is looking right now? I can picture a few cat claws starting to come out of her fingers because she would be jealous because she is the seventh. She is the one that's been sanctified. She is the one that I am attached to. She is the one that I should be choosing. I just can't choose one in seven, can I? You see, friends, God made the Sabbath day on the seventh day. It's a little bit like your birthday. My birthday is on September the 3rd. Now, if I come along and I say, listen, I, I'm sick of my birthday being on September the 3rd. I want my birthday to be on September the 4th. And when September the 4th comes around, I tell everybody, today's my birthday. I'm celebrating my birthday today on September the 4th. Can I do that, friends? No. The reason why I cannot do that is because it is an historical fact that I was born on the 3rd of September. I can't change that fact. I can say any other day of the year is my birthday, but the historical fact is, my friends, I was born on the 3rd of September, and I can't change that. And the historical fact is, my friends, on the seventh day of the week, God said he rested on that day, he blessed that day, he sanctified that day, he set it apart as the Sabbath day, and we can choose any other day of the week, but the historical fact is, the seventh day is God's Sabbath day. We cannot change that fact. In fact, the only day of the week we could not have as the Sabbath would be Sunday because it's the first day of the week. God could have created the world in one day and then rested on the second day. But Sunday is the only day he couldn't rest because he hadn't done anything yet. Why did God not create the world in one day and then rest the next day? God could have done that. The reason why he didn't do that is because God wanted to institute in this world a seven-day week cycle. You know, friends, we don't know where the seven-day week cycle came from. Months and years come from the cycle of the moon and the cycle of the sun. But why do we have a seven-day week? The reason why, friends, we have a seven-day week is because God created it. He knows that our bodies and our life work best on the rotation of a seven-day cycle, six days of work and one day of rest and worship. Now, through history, there's been people that have decided they are sick of religion, they're sick of God, and they don't want to follow God. 
And a good example is the French Revolution. Now, in the French Revolution, they banished religion, they banished God, and they also banished the seven-day week. They wanted to get so far away from God, they decided we're going to have a 10-day week, not a seven-day week. And they found the 10-day week absolutely caused chaos in their society. Man could not function properly on a 10-day on a week. And they went back to a seven-day week. The seven-day cycle, friends, comes right down to us from creation. And at the end of that seven-day week, after the six days of labor, God blessed and kept the Sabbath day holy. Notice Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. God blessed and sanctified and rested on the seventh day, no other day of the week. We cannot choose one in seven. The seventh day is the Sabbath of God, which is Saturday for us today. The last misunderstanding that comes across my path is a very good one. It's one that's easily accepted by people as evidence saying the Sabbath was done away with at first glance. And that one is number seven. The Sabbath was nailed to the cross. Now, let's have a look at this. This is a very important one to have a look at because many Christians get this verse of Scripture and at first glance it seems to be saying the Sabbath was done away with. And this is a good argument that needs to be answered. Let's read the verses of Scripture that bring out this point now. We find it starts in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 14. Now, we covered these verses in our topic, The Great Controversy, dealing with the question when people come along and say the commandments were nailed to the cross. Let's look at this verse again. Colossians 2 verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And we discovered there in our topic, The Great Controversy, that the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. But it goes on now and says this in the next verses. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, when referring to this passage of Scripture, there are some who come to the conclusion that Paul was talking about the Ten Commandments being nailed to the cross and the seventh day Sabbath being nailed to the cross. And it seems to be saying that the Sabbath was done away. But what is the Bible really telling us here? What is actually nailed to the cross? What we must understand here, which is very important, is that there were two main laws given back in the Old Testament times. We've covered this once again already. I'm going to go through it again. Those commandments, those Ten Commandments were one of them. And the ceremonial law or the handwriting of ordinances was the other one. And we discovered on night four, the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. But with these two laws... We need to understand that there are two types of Sabbaths, two types of Sabbaths. There's the seventh-day Sabbath that comes from the creation week, and there are ceremonial Sabbaths that are attached to the ceremonial law or the handwriting of ordinances. And we find that with these two Sabbaths and these two, two laws, that one was nailed to the cross, one law, wasn't it? So, in turn, one of the Sabbaths was nailed to the cross, the ceremonial Sabbaths. You see, friends, there was lots of ceremonial Sabbaths in the old Jewish economy. There was the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, 
the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of First Fruits, the Passover Feast. These were all special feasts that were associated with the sanctuary service, and they were to be kept as ceremonial Sabbaths. They were days of rest. They were special days in the Jewish economy and the sanctuary service, and on those days they were also kept as a Sabbath rest. Now, it doesn't mean it was on Saturday. It was on whatever day of the week it fell. It's a little bit like the Christian world today keeps the 25th of December as Christmas Day. Now, Christmas Day every year is on a different day, isn't it? But it was still kept as a day off. The ceremonial Sabbaths were the same. Whatever date the Feast of Trumpets came on, that was the day they would keep as a Sabbath. Now, in Colossians, Paul is talking about the ceremonial laws and the ceremonial Sabbaths that were nailed to the cross. All these things were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Notice the words again back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Notice these words. It says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. The meat, the drink, the holy days, the new moon, and the Sabbath days, this is all talking about sanctuary service language here. It was the ceremonial Sabbaths that were nailed to the cross. And notice at the bottom of that text, it tells us what they were for. It says they were a shadow of things to come. That sanctuary service and the sacrificing of the lamb and those different feast days all pointed forward to Jesus Christ, to things to come. So that when Christ came, when he was nailed to the cross, there was no need for us now to keep those ceremonial Sabbaths, like the Day of Atonement, literal Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles and so forth. They were done away with at the cross. The ceremonial Sabbaths, not the weekly Sabbath of God's Ten Commandments. That was never done away. You know, friends, you must look at the times of which Paul was writing. Paul's writing to the church here. And he's talking about the people that come and they judge you and say, let no man judge you about holy days or drink offerings and meat offerings and new moon festivals and ceremonial Sabbaths. Because in the early church, many of the Jews accepted Christ and became converts to Christianity. It was very difficult for them They've just come out of a religion where there was a sanctuary service and they'd sacrifice lambs and they'd go through all these different ceremonies to now come and accept Christ by faith. And there was a lot of contention in the early church about keeping some of these feast days and the ceremonial Sabbaths. And circumcision was always a big one. You find it all through the epistles of Paul. He's often dealing with circumcision because people come along and say, you Gentiles should be all circumcised. And Paul's saying, it doesn't matter anymore. We don't need to be circumcised. And you can understand the Jew, Jewish converts coming into the Christian church, how hard it was for them to leave all these different things behind. And that's why Paul is saying, don't listen to people that are judging you about the Sabbath, ceremonial Sabbaths, and the new moon festivals and the, the, uh, the meat offering and the drink offering and so forth. Because all these things pointed forward to things to come, Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at this chart on the screen here. Let's notice these two particular Sabbaths. The Sabbath of Creation Week, the Seventh-day Sabbath, is a memorial and it points us back to creation to remember that God created us and that we worship Him. But the ceremonial Sabbaths were a shadow or a type and they pointed forward to Jesus Christ as our Saviour. 
Two different Sabbaths. One nailed to the cross, the ceremonial Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, written with the finger of God in tables of stone, is there for all eternity. In fact, the Bible tells us that when you and I get to heaven, we will still be keeping the seventh day Sabbath. Notice Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Wouldn't it seem strange, friends, for God to create the world and give us the Sabbath, to give us the Sabbath right down to the day of Jesus Christ, then to abolish the Sabbath right up to the second coming of Christ, and then when Jesus comes and we find ourselves in heaven, reestablish the Sabbath and keep it for all eternity. The Bible tells us, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come and worship before God. Friends, that will be a church service you do not want to miss. Can you imagine the universe assembling together on the Sabbath day to worship God? And rather than having Tony Rikus as the preacher of the hour, the preacher of the hour will be Jesus Christ himself. Friends, that is a service you don't want to miss. But the Bible tells us the Sabbath is going to go for all eternity. Why would God abolish it for just the 2,000 years of the Christian period? Friends, he wouldn't, and he hasn't. The Sabbath was at creation. It's in his commandments, written with his own finger. It's eternal. It goes right through to the end of this earth's history, and then through eternity, we will still be keeping God's seventh-day Sabbath. But doesn't the church claim that the change of the Sabbath comes from the Scriptures? Don't the churches say, well, listen, we're keeping Sunday. We've, we've left the Sabbath behind. Can't they come to the Bible and show us a verse of Scripture where it's been changed? They cannot, friends. Notice some of these statements here from church leaders. There's many, many of them, but just a couple to, to uh, get the point across. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. That's Cardinal James Gibbons. Another one here. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the scriptures. Because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by a command of Christ, but by its own authority. Another one here. I honestly believe that this commandment, the Sabbath, is just as binding today as it ever was. The Sabbath was binding in Eden, and it has been in force ever since. How can men claim that this one commandment has been done away with when they will admit that the other nine, adultery, murder, lying, theft, etc., are still binding. That was the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody from the 1800s. And that's true. How can we say we shouldn't be killing, lying, murdering, thieving? That should be still there, but the Sabbath's been done away with. Friends, the Sabbath has never been done away with. Now, back in 1893, T. Enright put out a reward. He offered a $1,000 reward for someone who could find in the Bible a text that tells us that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Notice his words here. But Sunday is not the Sabbath. Any schoolboy knows that Sunday is the first day of the week. I have repeatedly offered $1,000 to anyone 
who will prove by the Bible alone that Sunday is the day we are bound to keep and no one has called for the money. This is back in 1893. Now, $1,000 back in 1893, that was a lot of money. Now, of course, you may be challenged tonight thinking, I wish that this man T. Enright was still alive. I would get my Bible, I would go and show him that verse, and I would get that $1,000. Well, sadly, T. Enright has passed away. But tonight is still your lucky opportunity, friends. Tonight, with a bit of inflation added to the $1,000, I am going to offer a reward of $100,000. A $100,000 reward for anyone who can find in the seminar Bible where the Sabbath was changed into Sunday. This is your opportunity, friends, $100,000. Pay off that mortgage, buy that new car, buy that boat, do something. But if you can come and show me one verse in the Scripture where the Sabbath was changed into Sunday, you will get that $100,000 reward. You see, friends, in the book of Matthew, chapter 15, Jesus was having a controversy with the Jewish nation. It had to do with one of the commandments. It was the fifth commandment dealing with honoring thy father and thy mother. They were breaking that commandment indirectly. And Jesus said these words in Matthew 15 verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, are you worshiping God in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? What is it going to be in your life, truth or tradition? The Bible and the Word of God, God's seal, His Sabbath, or will it be the traditions of men that have come down through the ages of Sunday as the Sabbath day? The choice is yours. The choice is mine. God is simply saying to you and I tonight, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, tomorrow night, we are going to find out what the dreaded mark of the beast is and why the Sabbath is going to become especially important in the very near future. Our next lecture is entitled 666 and the Mark of the Beast. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit Cornerstone hyphen ministries.org You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio.